Welcome back to the program. As we watch presidential candidates on both sides putting together their respective teams for 2016, it reminds us that politics and public policy is indeed like a team sport. Both sides draw from a deep bench of those that have served in previous administrations and also bring up young up-and-coming rookies that then go on, if they win, to be the future veterans. Just as it's true in campaigns and policy, it's equally true in the legal world. Both parties have their farm teams from which to draw legal policy ideas and judges. On the left, it's always been a kind of informal network of professors and legal scholars in our most elite universities and law schools. On the right, the Federalist Society has become both the back office and the bench for the conservative legal movement. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Amanda Hollis Brusky. She's an assistant professor of politics at Pomona College in Claremont, where she teaches courses in constitutional law, legal institutions, and American politics. It is my pleasure to welcome Amanda Hollis Brusky to the program to talk about her new book, Ideas with Consequences, The Federalist Society and the Conservative Counter-Revolution. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Great to have you here. When did the Federalist Society first come to be? Well, the Federalist Society was founded in 1982 by a small group of conservative and libertarian law students at Yale and the University of Chicago. And a number of the founding members of the Federal Society had worked on the Reagan presidential campaign. And they noticed a profound mismatch between the ideas that were achieving political ascendancy of the time, so ideas about limited government, free markets, states' rights, and the ideas that were being represented at their elite law schools, which by and large were and still are left of center or liberal in their orientation. So the Federal Society was really founded to provide a counterweight, to provide a home for conservatives and libertarians who felt ostracized in their own law schools. To what extent was there unanimity of vision, unanimity of ideas among the people that became part of the Federalist Society? Because when we talk about conservatives, particularly today, conservatives and libertarians and various other strains within the conservative movement, there's not always absolute consistency, particularly as it might apply to legal issues. No, that's correct. And in fact, um, the founding generation of the Federal Society had been heavily influenced by sort of the National Review Movement and this idea of uh, fusionism, right? The attempt to sort of fuse conservative and libertarian factions to bring them together under a big tent. And so the Federal Society was probably one of the earliest attempts and one of the most successful attempts to do this within the law to try to fuse conservative and libertarian beliefs and to try to bring them into the debate and into the dialogue. But sitting out there, in addition to mainstream conservative ideas and libertarianism, was this originalist idea, which didn't always fit within that framework. Yeah, and so originalism and and sort of the growth of originalism has been really fascinating to watch, because in many ways, originalism, which is the belief that the Constitution should be interpreted according to its original meaning, right? It's 1789 original meaning. Um, it's a very malleable philosophy right? because it involves digging through history, digging through records, trying to tease out what the original public meaning was of very ambiguous phrases within the Constitution. For example, what does cruel and unusual punishment mean, right? What does equal protection mean? Um, and so originalism really provided a way for conservatives and libertarians to shape the Constitution uh, in a particular way to really effectively use history 
in a way that would narrow the nation's commerce power, that would uh, help deregulate various parts of industries, that would really usher in a pre-1937 understanding of, of constitutional power and, and limited government. As you talk about that, it goes back to this idea that you were interested in, really, that moved this project along for you, this idea of interpretive communities. Talk a little about that. Yeah, so I first got interested in this in this project because I was reading a lot about um, interpretive communities in the sense of literary theory. So Stanley Fish is a big proponent mm. of, of this theory, and what he argues is, how do we understand why uh, Jane Austen, right? We're reading a, a, a Jane Austen novel. How does the meaning we mean one thing? And then the scholarly community all of a sudden decides that the same language in that text means a completely different thing. And so how do interp- authoritative interpretation of texts change and evolve over time? And what he ar- points out uh, very astutely is that it, there is no objective meaning to the text. We create meaning, and that meaning is often politically created. And so when you get enough people in positions of power and authority who believe a certain interpretation of the text, then that uh, interpretation becomes authoritative. And so I had been thinking about this as it relates to the Constitution. The Constitution is a text. The words of the Constitution haven't changed, and yet its meaning has evolved, and sometimes rather drastically, over the, over the past 150 years. So how does that happen? Who are the actors who are responsible for evolving and changing constitutional meaning? And that sort of led me to, to discover and really start to investigate the federal society. As we look at this idea of interpretive communities, particularly as it relates to to legal issues, to constitutional issues, the things that you're looking at, how has that evolved conceptually in various periods where we've had divided government and where we've become more polarized? And certainly this is a cycle that has gone on in American history. Has there been any change in the concept of interpretive communities with respect to the legal communities in periods when we've been more or less divided? Well, I think in in periods where um, we're very polarized, where you have a deeply or sharply divided uh, government and also a deeply and sharply divided judiciary, the role of interpretive communities becomes a lot more important. Um, because in those periods where you have, let's say, a five-justice majority on the Supreme Court, um, that is conservative, and four that are liberal, and that five-justice majority really wants to move the law in a radically different direction. It feels that it has license to do so. Then what they need to do is sort of draw from that outside community to help them reshape and rebuild the law. For example, in the book I talk about the Second Amendment as a classic example of this. The Second Amendment, which protects the right to keep and bear arms, was interpreted as a collective right for about 150 years the Supreme Court and lower federal courts had consistently said, you can't take all the guns from all the people, but you can certainly limit, restrict, and regulate uh, who gets guns, and you can remove them from, from some of the people. And when five justices on the Supreme Court decided that they wanted to radically revise that interpretation, they couldn't rely on their precedent. They couldn't look backwards, as courts often do, and say this decision is consistent with precedents X, Y, and Z. They had to look outside of the court for external authorities to help them rebuild the constitutional scaffolding 
for the Second Amendment. And this is the dynamic that I argue that really heightens the importance of these interpretive communities or epistemic communities or whatever jargon you want to use to talk about them. They become very important in times like this when, when the court wants to move the law in a radically new direction. And as you've written about, Citizens United arguably is the penultimate current example of this. Absolutely. Citizens United is um, is another case that I talk about in the book in which the Supreme Court um, really made uh, extensive use of the Federal Society Network and their, their scholarship and what I call their intellectual capital you know, in order to persuade us that the First Amendment uh, freedom of speech was intended in some extent to protect um, campaign donations, but also to, to protect corporations um, just as it's intended to protect individuals, the Supreme Court needed to persuade us of that. It was the first time they had really articulated that as a constitutional principle. And so in order to do that, they relied on this intellectual capital from various Federal Society Network members and scholars who had been trying to uh, build up the intellectual scaffolding for that precise argument. And once there were five justices on the court who were ready to accept it, um, that those theories and those sources and that that capital was ready. It was there for them to help them rebuild that that uh, scaffolding. And that scaffolding, as you talk about it, is something that's been building or that they've been looking at building for a long time, even preceding Buckley v. Vallejo. Yeah, and so you know, Buckley v. Vallejo was a 1976 decision, and that really does predate the Federal Society. And so, as I argue in the book, clearly there were you know the bricks were laid um, for this path that led us to Citizens United prior to the Federal Society's founding. But there had been a series of decisions um, by the Rehnquist Court that had, in, in, if you're a libertarian, that had really set that path back, that had taken the court in a different direction, that had been more permissible of federal regulation of campaign contributions and of corporate political speech. And so it was those decisions that then became the target for the Federal Society Network. And what they wanted to argue were these decisions were deviating from the Buckley path, right? The path that says money is speech. The path, um, two, you know, two years later, there was a follow-up decision called First National Bank of Boston versus Bilotti, in which they extended those speech rights to corporations, but in a more limited way. And so what the Federal Society did was sort of take that Bilotti precedent and keep it alive and keep reminding the Supreme Court that, hey, this was the authoritative interpretation of this provision prior to these other decisions. You should really overturn those other decisions. And they lobbied consistently enough, and the, and the Supreme Court listened. How do conservatives and libertarians square the circle when you, when you look at the totality of this with the activism that's involved and for so long this is a group that railed against the court being too activist yeah and then i talk about that in the book so so chapter three where i talk about citizens united the title is judicial activism inc right incorporated and that was one of the newspaper headlines that came out uh, the day after the citizens united decision was handed down and so within the Federal Society Network, I talk about there is, uh, I would say, the converse of judicial activism is called judicial restraint. And there are really two sets of understandings of that within the Federal Society Network. And the first is what I call the J. Harvey Wilkinson model. This is sort of an old-school Reagan conservative who believed that judicial restraint means that you don't move the law too far too fast, 
that you respect the decisions of elected majorities, and that you don't disrupt the constitutional landscape unless you absolutely have to. You, you work hard not to overturn precedent, right, decisions of previous courts. And that is the old school understanding of judicial restraint and one that had been dominant within the conservative circles for, you know, for a long time. That goes to the very underpinnings of conservatism in a traditional kind of Burkean way. Absolutely, right? This is a very Burkean notion, right, of conservative, that, that you just don't move too far too fast. And yet what you see now within the Federal Society Network is a rise of another model of judicial restraint. And this, in the book I call, this is the sort of Richard Epstein, uh, Randy Barnett, and Clarence Thomas model. And to them, judicial restraint means you interpret the Constitution according to its original 18th century meaning. Um, and anything that deviates from that, even if, it, if, if ruling consistent with that means overturning 100 precedents, you're still being judicially restrained because you're interpreting the Constitution in a manner that is correct, and you're acknowledging that courts have been doing it wrong. And so that idea of judicial restraint, I argue in the book, is becoming the dominant one within the Federal Society Network, and it's giving these justices license to sort of correct the mistakes of the past, to repair constitutional doctrines, even if that means, again, uh, disregarding uh, precedents and overturning stare decisis. And in fact, we have three justices on the court that pretty much subscribe to exactly what you're talking about, that really buy into this Federalist Society idea. Absolutely. And actually, if you look at um, four of the justices have been deeply involved with the Federal Society Network. Um, Antonin Scalia was one of the early founders, um, advisors to the Federal Society when it was a student group at the University of Chicago when he was a professor. Uh, Clarence Thomas has been described by many within the network as the closest thing to a pure Federal Society model on the court. And then um, uh, Samuel Alito and John Roberts were both groomed through the Federal Society, came up through its ranks, and were very well known within the network as well. So um, those four have deep ties to the Federal Society network. And as you mentioned, three of the four seem very eager and willing to um, to sort of bring that Federal Society understanding into their judging. And Chief Justice John Roberts arguably has been the one who thinks a little bit more about judicial restraint in the Harvey Wilkinson way, as mm-hmm. I described it mm-hmm. previously. Is there currently any kind of evolution to these Federalist Society ideas and interpretation, or is it pretty much fixed at the moment? Do we see it changing, expanding in any way? No, I think there's an important point to be made here, which is this is a dynamic network. Um, It claims anywhere from 40 to 60,000 members, depending on how you count. So... Um, and I obviously don't ascribe all of the beliefs uh, that I talk about in the book to every member of that network. I'm looking at a real core of about a thousand members, right? Those who are most active in public policy, those who are invited to speak at national conferences, those who are the thought leaders within the network. But it's important to note that there is several generations of young law students coming up through the organization who eventually will shape it and mold it and and take it in a, in, in a direction that that is either politically or strategically or legally most beneficial to them. Um, And I think as liberals respond to these conservative and libertarian ideas, uh, you see these ideas evolving in a way that's very strategic. And if there is a particular way of understanding, you know, uh, 
the First Amendment or freedom of religion that becomes no longer um, effective strategically at the Supreme Court or in lower courts, then you will see the, the network change and adapt. They, sort of, they remarket, they rebrand, they re-strategize. And so this is a very dynamic network. To what extent have these ideas and the power and influence of the Federalist Society filtered into the purely political process? We've been talking about it very much in the context of legal decisions in the courts. To what extent has Congress and the political arms of, of government bought into this, and how have we seen that play out? That's a great question. When I was doing a lot of my interviews, when I was speaking with members of the Federal Society Network in 2008, one of the themes I heard consistently from the founders and the executive leadership was that they wish they could do more to reach out to the political branches. They really wish Congress would have a better understanding of its proper constitutional role. Um, And there are obstacles to that. And David McIntosh, who's one of the co-founders of the Federal Society, also ran for Congress in his home state of Indiana. And he told me that when he goes home to Indiana, he doesn't talk about his involvement with this high-theorizing, legal, conservative uh, network. He doesn't talk about his involvement with the Federal Society. He doesn't talk about how much time he spends thinking about the Constitution. He talks about issues, right? He talks about things that matter to normal, everyday people. And so there's some extent, to some extent, it, it creates a barrier for congressmen and politicians. Their constituencies don't necessarily want to know that they spent their time going to Federal Society meetings and debating and, and engaging in this high theorizing about the Constitution. But as I do mention in the book, the rise of the Tea Party has been really interesting to watch and to understand how the rise of the Tea Party with its own brand of popular constitutionalism is relating to the Federal Society, which uh, is a network of elites. And I start to get at uh, the ways in which the Federal Society is, seems to be reaching out to the Tea Party movement. Some of the leaders within the Tea Party movement were also involved in the Federal Society. So I talk about Mike Lee. Um, out of Utah, was the student chapter president. He was in law school of the Federal Society. Ted Cruz was deeply involved with the Federal Society and is, of course, a leader in the Tea Party movement. So it seems to be bringing itself into dialogue with the Tea Party, um, although there's some skepticism about that, about aligning themselves too closely with the Tea Party movement. So we may see the Tea Party to start uh, to be influenced by the Federal Society or the Federal Society to start to be more influenced by the Tea Party. How does the legal community feel about these ideas being in some ways potentially co-opted within the political process? Do they feel that it will somehow taint it within the legal community? I do think there's some skepticism on the part of Federal Society Network members about about the Tea Party, about trying to popularize um, originalism or, or dilute it in a way that's more accessible to the political process, that makes more sense in sound bites. Um, there, there's certainly the founders of the Federal Society are very thoughtful and very insightful about how they develop this constitutional philosophy, who were their intellectual inspirations, um, and they're very committed to the reasoning, you know, the reasoning that goes into their constitutional and legal ideas, and the idea that that these uh, would then be translated into sound bites almost might might give pause to some within the Federal Society network and might make them a little bit more hesitant to align themselves with you know, more popular political movements. It seems that they've gone out of their way at times to avoid being seen as just a lobbying group, per se. Yeah, and I think that's important. Um, the Federal Society as an organization doesn't lobby. It doesn't 
submit amicus briefs to the court. It doesn't bring cases to the court like a public interest law firm. Um, but so so it's it's a self-professed society of ideas, and its focus has been on educating, training, and socializing its members, right? Shaping its members in a particular way, and then encouraging those members to go on and shape policy, and shape judicial decisions, and shape uh, the media, and shape the dialogue. And so the Federal Society is one step removed from the way it exerts its influence. Um, it's not how we traditionally think of, of an interest group, group um, or a lobbying, lobbying group, but it's been extremely important because it has shaped uh, generations of conservative and libertarian lawyers in a particular way and then created avenues for them to access power within the judicial branch, within the executive branch, um, and even within policymaking. Um, so it's it's grooming them, it's socializing them, and then it, it really is creating a lot of avenues for them to go out and and access power. Talk a little bit about what's been happening in the liberal community in trying to replicate this and trying to copy this through the American Constitution Society. Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch because the Federal Society modeled itself on what it you know, what Stephen Tellis in his book calls the liberal legal network. And this was the more informal network of lawyers and judges and academics that had for so long uh, really shaped the policy debate and shaped legal and judicial decisions. But as I, as I write about in the book, the Federal Society, though it modeled itself on that liberal legal network, is in many ways superior to its prototype. By institutionalizing and more formalizing these networks, um, it's been uh, strategically um, uh, more effective, arguably, than, than its prototype. And so what's happened is that the, the American Constitution Society comes along in 2001 because the left thinks that those old informal networks are no longer functioning as an adequate counterweight to the more formalized networks of the Federal Society. So the American Constitution Society models itself on the Federal Society. It is identical in its institutional machinery, the same structure as the Federal Society, the same goals, though with a progressive um, agenda as the Federal Society. Um, and so one of the things that I look at in the book is whether or not the American Constitution Society, just by replicating the machinery of the Federal Society, is going to be in a position to have the same kind of impact on the left that the Federal Society has on the right. Historically, it, it seems that it wouldn't work. When we've seen, and this is true for both political parties, for both sets of ideas, both liberal and conservative, then when one side tries to imitate the machinery or mechanism that organically gave birth to some kind of institution, that it, that it just doesn't play out the same way. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. And, you know, my early assessment of the American Constitution Society, one of the things I identify as missing is some kind of response to originalism. The left for so long had living constitutionalism, the idea that the Constitution evolves and changes and adapts to contemporary circumstances. That has been all but uh, killed by the right. If to say that the Constitution is living is now synonymous with saying that judges just um, interpret the Constitution according to their own subjective whims and policy preferences. It's seen as um, politically unacceptable, and it's been uh, almost buried by the right very effectively. Except in civil rights issues. That's the exception, and it's an interesting one to look at. 
Yeah, but I, you know, if you're on the right, you you think that the original meaning, uh, the theory of original meaning, uh, actually limits the government's role in promoting equality, limits the government's role in um, in integration and in race conscious remedies and gender conscious remedies, and so originalism can be understood as um, a, a counterweight, you know, a real effective counterweight to the living constitution, especially in areas of civil rights, areas that the Warren Court um, and uh, the rights revolution had um, had really effectively uh, shaped. It's interesting to see where Justice Kennedy is, who sort of hasn't gone along with, with all of these changes, even as somebody that came in as, as a small-c conservative. Yeah, Justice Kennedy uh, is not, you know, identify four out of the five conservatives as members of the Federal Society for a reason. Justice Kennedy was not um, on the Federal Society radar even in the 1980s. You remember he was appointed because of the failed nomination of Robert Bork. And Robert Bork was one of the early patrons of the Federal Society. Many of the founding generation who I interviewed identified Bork as one of their key intellectual inspirations. And the failed nomination of Bork created a rallying effect for the early Federal Society members. Um, They felt this was a front to originalism. This was an affront to conservative and libertarian thought. It was a political attack um, by the left that derailed a good traditional conservative jurist like Robert Bork. And so instead, we've got Anthony Kennedy, um, who was extremely confirmable. And everyone I spoke to who was involved with the nomination at that time said, we needed someone who could get through the process. And that was Anthony Kennedy. So we sort of sidelined our preference for a real strong ideological conservative, and we got Anthony Kennedy. And as you mentioned, Kennedy has been, he votes with the conservatives on federalism issues. He's very strongly opposed to the Affordable Care Act, as we saw. Um, when it comes to state sovereignty, but and when it comes to uh, deregulating campaign finance, but when it comes to these other more social issues like abortion and marriage equality, he tends to vote for the liberal bloc. Do the positions and the attitudes of the those justices that buy into all of these Federalist Society positions that we've been talking about, does that become a litmus test even for conservatives in confirming future justices? I think it does. I think we've seen the Federal Society, as many of my interviewees put it, has a de facto monopoly on the credentialing of rising stars within the conservative legal movement. You can't have a conversation in Washington about judges without the Federal Society being part of that conversation. And I think we saw strong evidence of of that when with the failed nomination of Harriet Myers. Um, Harriet Myers was a family friend of the Bush, uh, the Bush family, um, a judge out of Texas, but she was a virtual unknown to the Federal Society Network. And when she was nominated by George W. Bush to succeed Sandra Day O'Connor, there was a loud and vocal revolt from key segments of the Federal Society Network, which resulted in Bush withdrawing her nomination and appointing instead Samuel Alito, who was a Federal Society stalwart and, and still is. So I think there is concrete evidence of the effect that the Federal Society has had on judicial nominations, and I think will continue to have. Does the Federalist Society finally ever put itself in danger of being a victim of its own success? Will its own success in some way cause it to lose the energy that has existed around it? Oh, that's a great question. I think within the Federal Society network, there there's a sense um, 
with journalists, especially journalists on the left, that the Federal Society is now dominating the conversation, that originalism has become the dominant mode of, in, of constitutional interpretation, that the Federal Society is now hegemonic, that has become the establishment in some sense. And the Federal Society still rejects that. They'll point out um, what a small percentage of law faculty across the country are conservatives and libertarians. Um, they'll point out that they're still beleaguered, that their ideas are still dismissed by the liberal media. So I think there's a constant effort within the network to position themselves as still, um, with, they, they still have a lot of work to do, that they're still not where they ought to be. And, and I think that's important to their identity as well. So I think that they're, they have to keep reminding themselves, you know, uh, despite all of their success, that there's still a long way to go. Amanda Hollis-Brusky, her book is Ideas with Consequences, The Federalist Society and the Conservative Counter-Revolution. It's just out from Oxford University Press. Amanda, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 